ignorant in the information age, but facts are in short supply. Reject the noise, ask bold questions, and pursue the truth with FBI whistleblowers and founding suspendables, Garrett O'Boyle and Steve Friend. This is the American Radicals Podcast. It is the American Radicals Podcast here in a brand new year. Welcome to 2024. At Real, Steve Friend is here. Uh, Garrett, not here for the first episode of the new year, but uh, that's okay. He'll we'll, we'll give him one demerit. I'm sure he'll be here the rest of the way to go. I uh, hope everybody had a fantastic New Year's celebration. Uh, not too much. Hopefully uh, you were in bed when the ball dropped uh, and, and just started the, the, the work week off, I guess, uh, a little bit more casual, a little bit more ref- refined way uh, that, that you do if you're growing up. But if you tie one on, Hey man, hopefully it was uh, it was it was worth it. <laughs> but we're glad to have you here today. Uh, if you're following us in uh, in the chat, if you're on Rumble, make sure that you're there. You give us a, a like, give us a thumbs up, give us a follow. Subsequently, if if you happen to be streaming the the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or iHeart, any one of those services, make sure you subscribe so you can get all the updates. Glad to be here with you today. Uh, we're going to start off the new year with a bang with a guest uh, because. We think that uh, we want to push 2024 in the way that 2023 went with whistleblowers. And the best way for there is to kind of look to the past uh, and 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 learn how the uh, the trailblazers sort of set out ahead of us and what they did, uh, the pitfalls that they were able to navigate. We can learn lessons uh, and, and highlight the things that have been going on because what people like Garrett and like myself and like others have come forward in the last uh, year or two, uh, it's not new. Uh, this is a the, the sort of the, the the lyrics of the song might be a little bit different, but the the tune is uh, is definitely very much the same. Uh, so for 2024, for our first episode, I wanted to bring on a guy who I've gotten to know over the last uh, about the last year. It's Greg Dillon. Now, Greg is the author of a book called The Thin Blue Lie. He was a state police officer. He was a federal agent for the FBI and then went back to the state, uh, has a great story to tell. Um, when I first became aware of Greg, I was actually invited to his uh, to a book event for him and immediately picked up a copy of the book. I read it and it was immediately apparent to me uh, that uh, unfortunately, Greg, I know your, your mom might have told you they broke the mold when they made you, but uh, I think that they ran me off the conveyor belt right after that. You are a kindred spirit. You are my spirit animal. We're very similar minded. Um, and I'm, I'm honored to have you here to come talk to me about uh, what your experience was like as an officer of the law uh, and as a whistleblower. And then maybe uh, what your thoughts are on the current status of law enforcement in America, specifically the FBI. Thanks for joining me here today. Thank you so much, Steve, for having me. And it was an honor and pleasure to meet you last March down in Florida. Um, I wish I had stayed down there because you look quite fit, tan, and healthy. And I'm very pale <laughs> in comparison. So, um, you know, I was struck when I uh, finally had the chance to to read your book, which I would highly recommend. It's excellent. And it, it, it is a, a compelling read. But we, we did have a lot of, of things in common. Um, we both started off as local police officers uh, with aspirations to go to the FBI early on. And uh, so, so we had a very parallel um, paths, even though they were years and years apart. Um, so that was something we had in common, um, a dedication to fitness, um, strong religious convictions. And uh, I guess the only difference is 
when I became a whistleblower against the FBI, I was no longer an FBI agent. Um, I had left the police department in, in 1985 to accept a position with the FBI. And I was an agent for five years, only leaving because um, I was unable to get back to New England, specifically Connecticut, but New England. Um, and that was my, you know, that was sort of my, my goal all along was to be able to, um, you know, live and work um, at least near my home state. So that was the reason I left the FBI and, and took a position with the uh, Office of the Chief State's Attorney in Connecticut. Um, when I was forced to become a whistleblower, um, ironically, it was against the FBI. And the uniqueness was, unlike uh, you and Garrett, um, who were targeted um, by the FBI and were, were sort, sort of easy prey because you were employees, I was no longer an employee, um, yet they still figured out ways of making my life miserable um, through my employer, who was the chief state's attorney. So that is, I guess, the only real difference, that and the number of years that went by uh, between your story and my story. But um, they, um, they're powerful enough and um, shrewd enough to figure out how to still squeeze the person that they don't like and, and try to do it in, in what they think are legal ways. Um, so that is probably the, the only real difference between um, you, Garrett, and, and me and our stories. You know, I've kind of come around in this. It's, you do a really good job in the very beginning of your book. That's what grabbed me of uh, identifying the different personalities that exist in law yes. enforcement, that these typecasts that you have. Um, and it, it rang true to me. And I would encourage, again, anybody to pick up a copy of it, The Thin Blue Lie. It's, it's a great read. Uh, and, and you describe yourself, I guess, as the Boy Scout. Is, is really the, the way that, that you characterize yourself. And uh, my pushback to that is I, I think it's it's got a negative connotation and I've come around to this idea of it's the system idealist who yes. is, is in, in law enforcement. And for the most part, I, I think in, most people get into it for that reason. I agree. Um, and the, I, the difference between the system disruptor that we celebrate now, especially in the, the big tech sphere, the, the guy who's coming out with the next app, and the system idealist is that if you go into law enforcement, you're about following the rules. You're not mm -hmm. about thinking outside the box necessarily in, in a constitutional perspective. It, you want to follow the rules, the law, the constitution, and your job is to really stand in the gap against the system disruptor. That's the lawbreaker. And if that person who is the system disruptor happens to be wearing your uniform, then there's this, this conundrum that people find themselves in, uh, or am I a rat? Am, am, or am I doing the right thing at the right time for the right reason? And I think that, and that sort of defines what you put put forward in, in your story and, and what, what Garrett and I, we've, we've re leaned heavily on, which is why we've always resisted of, you know, we're, we're not going to be, uh, we're not going to be characterized as this rat or this tattletale because we're about doing the right thing and upholding mm -hmm. our oath of office. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to get to to some of the, the, the story because I, I think it's it's really unique because we get into this the UFAT the unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. Uh, I had a limited experience with it in my time in the FBI, mm -hmm. um, but but your story is definitely is is really compelling and especially because you happen to bring in the the great Serpico at the end of it, which is uh, which is pretty cool. Um, 
but as a background for who you are to, for the audience who might not know, um, I know you, you grew up in Connecticut where, where law enforcement there before and joined the FBI. Can you just, uh, kind of lay out, uh, who, who, who is Greg Dillon? Sure. So I, yeah, I was born and raised in New Haven and, and lived there the first 24 years of my life. Um, uh, when I was in college, um, for the criminal justice program, which I think was the same uh, major that you had also followed, right? My wife did. I was an accountant. That's right. I'm sorry. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. No, no, no. I remember that now. Yes, yes. Um, but I had the opportunity to work as a as a courtroom sheriff um, while I was in college. So I, I got a little bit of exposure to the criminal justice system. Um, I got to watch some great criminal trials, um, which was great background for, for my chosen career path. Um, as soon as I graduated from college, I immediately was hired by the Brantford Police Department as a part-time um, police officer. They called them supernumeraries uh, back then. And um, so I worked at the courthouse full-time. I worked on weekends at the Brantford Police Department. I was eventually hired for a full-time position in 1981. And after I had a few years of experience, which was the requirement to apply to the FBI, uh, I did and was fortunate enough to be hired in 1985. Um, my first office assignment was the um, Alexandria Field Office, now defunct, but that was my first uh, assignment. And initially worked background investigations, the applicant squad. Um, got an opening to go to the criminal reactive squad, primarily bank robberies, the occasional kidnapping, and uh, crimes up to the uh, Lorton Prison, which was a federal uh, prison. Um, at some point, the Alexandria Field Office was absorbed by the Washington Field Office. And I was then folded into the Washington field office at Buzzards Point. So I went from a 60 agent office to a 600 agent office. I went from a 12 man SWAT team to a, um, what did we have? Um, 60, I think 63 uh, agents on the uh, SWAT team when you combine the assault teams and the uh, sniper observer teams. Um, so it was a big step up. And uh, again, now I found myself on the violent crime squad lots of bank robberies, more kidnappings, armored car robberies, and fugitives. A nice this mix is, of work. Yep. This, this is the stuff that people watch TV and movies who might one day aspire to be in the FBI. Like that's, that's the pop culture idea. So you were sure. kind yeah, of it's, it's, it's living that experience. All the action now. is, and it's, yeah, it's the, sort of the tip of the spear sort of work, I guess. And uh, engaging, um, you know, tiring, um, but um, challenging. Um, but unbeknownst yes. to you, that that absorption from Alexandria into the Washington field office is ultimately what sets you on the path for you needed to move on to to greener pastures outside the FBI. Can you, uh, can you kind of lay that out, how that administrative uh, loophole that you fell into sure. was a problem? Yeah. So so initially when I was when I was going through the process, you know, my I made it clear that I was hoping to get back to New Haven eventually or at least the New England area in the short term. And I was told three to five years would probably get me either into New York, Boston, or Newark, which I was comfortable with. Um, what I didn't realize was when we were absorbed by the Washington field office, that in essence became my second office. So now I was, uh, my opportunity um, for my second office transfer, um, I don't wanna say it was stolen, but it was, it was negated. And I was told that this was now my second assignment which would last anywhere from 12 to 15 more years. I had already had five years in at that point, and I felt like if I had any chance of ever um, getting back to Connecticut and my family and friends, I would have to do it with another agency. 
Um, so that forced my hand to apply to become an inspector at the chief state's attorney's office, which to a degree was FBI light. Um, state police authorities, state police radios, uh, but no uniform, no marked cars, and all the criminal work was, you know, sort of grade A major case work that, that covered the entire state. So I felt like it was maybe a little bit of a letdown, but not by much, and it got me where I wanted to be. So in 1990, uh, I started my career uh, at the Chief State's Attorney's Office. And was that your your initial entry to that office? I think it was not for anything violent, right? It was for a financial. Yeah, crime. initially it was a white collar crime assignment, which was a way to get my foot in the door. Um, that transformed into being assigned to a one man grand jury investigation into corruption within the. Connecticut State Police and the Hartford Police Department. Um, as that was winding down, uh, the um, chief state attorney decided he wanted to create a independent fugitive squad, uh, which I applied for. And um, being the most naive and youngest inspector in the office, uh, I, I was the only one who applied for the position and naturally got it. Um, and and within, a, within a short amount of time of the formation of the squad, which initially was only me, then it became another inspector. Um, the New Haven FBI um, extended an invitation to join the Connecticut Fugitive Task Force, which had some state troopers in it, a couple of municipal detectives, and, of course, several uh, FBI agents. Um, my boss loved the notion of it because he was infatuated with the FBI and quickly agreed that this would be a, a, uh, a good idea. Yeah, the, the chief state's attorney for Connecticut at this time, uh, he's he was like old political uh family yes. right he was like yes. a, like almost like the kennedys in, in connecticut exactly he was the equivalent of the kennedy family in connecticut his father ironically that you mentioned the kennedys was at one point the democratic national chairman and if you uh, ever read a book about the jfk presidency he is often attributed as being the mastermind of getting jfk elected as president and and the and the so that the chief uh, state's attorney, his idea for this fugitive ta uh, task force that they wanted to formulate. Um, you have to refresh my memory on this. And I, I, sure. it's basically, it, it was a revenue earner for for the state. It, 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 that's the way it was sort of presented, right? It, it, it was because when he agreed to host a independent fugitive squad, at the same time, he created a unit of prosecutors that would go out and collect any of the forfeited bonds. So we were funded basically with the money the bad guys were putting up. And then when they didn't show up for court, um, that money was forfeited and put into a fund, which we received a third of for to, to, to um, equip and train fugitive squad inspectors. So the initial squad of two soon became four and then became six. And then you eventually... Uh, wind up going over to the the New Haven FBI office, their task force, and, and joining Correct. forces with the FBI and, and yes. state police and other other agencies there. And mm -hmm. that's where we sort of get into this idea of the unlawful flight to avoid prosecution warrant, the UFAP yes. warrant. Yes. And yeah. and for those unaware, uh, this is a, a tool, and I, I use it very sparingly in my time in the FBI. But essentially, bad guy commits a crime in the state of Connecticut and then flees knowing that he's going to be prosecuted for that crime you have to prove that he's he's left the state you have to prove that he knows that he's under uh, some sort of investigation or prosecution and he flees 
And now the state agency might be a local New Haven Police Department, maybe doesn't have the bandwidth or the resources to say, hey, this guy robbed a liquor store and now he's over in uh, Missouri. What are we going to do? Well, they go to the FBI or a federal agency and the federal agency that does, they swear out a warrant, a UFAP warrant saying that we know he left and we're going to use our resources, the federal resources to go grab him, pull him back to Connecticut. And then typically we'll just dismiss our charges. But at that point, he's in your hands, local agency, and you can do with him what you wish. Is that sort of the way Th That's amend? correct. The only thing I, I would just amend typically to always, they never prosecuted fugitives federally, ever. It was automatically dropped as soon as the person was in custody and remanded back to the state of Connecticut. That was without exception. And, and th this is used actually not even just for inside the United States. I mean, you, I, I use a UFAP for somebody who went to Mexico so they could leave yes, the country. Yeah. And then yeah. you're having to work with a legal attache or yes. the federales. I mean, it, it yeah. can involve yeah, we've a had lot Mexico, of- Yeah, we've Mexico, Canada, Jamaica, um, yeah, various various countries throughout the the, uh, the world, yeah. And and what's the, the tempo like when you're chasing fugitives uh, in, in, in your time in that in that area in Connecticut where you guys, what's what's a caseload for you all looking like? It, you know, it depended on, on your agency. Um, some of the state troopers, did not have a lot of um, warrants um, to begin with. Um, and, um, and and if they did, a lot of them were just to the level where the person would never leave the state. It wasn't really worth it. Um, but, you know, the bigger departments, you know, more homicide cases, uh, attempted murders, um, sexual assault ones. Um, those people had more incentive to flee because their jail time hanging over their head was much higher. Their exposure was, was greater. Um, so they had the tendency to to, um, to to leave the state and either travel to another state or actually flee the country, especially if they were a foreign national to begin with. So, you know, obviously the Mexicans would fl flee to Mexico, um, you know, Canadians back to Canada, uh, wh wherever their, their home host country was. Um, and as a state um, investigator, we had access to any warrant anywhere in the state. So um, we, we tended to get the best cases because we had the biggest uh, pool to draw from. Um, in, in addition to also carrying um, probation violators and parole absconders. What was the environment like once you joined that FBI task force? I mean, you probably had to answer a lot of questions for why you weren't an FBI agent anymore from the, the guys who were. Yeah, that was the initial point. pushback. You know, why would you leave? Why would you leave? And I, I made it clear. I said, you know, I don't want to say it was a bait and switch, but but you know, my plan all along was to get back to Connecticut and that plan um, you know, went sideways. Um, not, it's kind of hard for them to criticize being New Haven agents to, <laughs> that they could have criticized you because they were actually living in the area you wanted. You probably could have said, well, you could have, you know, resigned and I could have filled your spot. But <laughs> <laughs> all right. So so you're over at the at the FBI task force um, and for a, a certain amount of time before uh, things are kind of go off the rails. Uh, how long was was the honeymoon period before you eventually? It, it might have been about a year. Um, you, you know, I, I think because when we came in, when I say we, the inspectors came in, you know, we we, we brought in a lot of good work. And um, not to brag, but when I went through to check the, the um, when we were preparing to leave, I was curious as to what our contribution was. Even though we made up less than 50% of the task force, we were responsible for more than 80% of the custody arrests that were being made. So I always took pride in the fact that we we, we did above and beyond uh, our share of, of the work there. 
and and here's the the rub of this this and this this goes on. We've talked about this offline where it comes to the numbers game. Yes. Uh, you you know you you get your your warrants and obviously it's funding your your arm of the, of yep. the agency uh, so that that's clearly accounted for. The FBI is also claiming credit for those. So oh, yeah. they're 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 double counting, triple counting. Yeah, it's whatever. a redundant yeah. sort of a system. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, so the fact that you're able to actually zero in on how you were punching above your weight to to that extent, uh, I think it bodes well for your your actual contribution there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And now now we get into what was what was the FBI doing with these right. UFAP warrants uh, that got you got you concerned about uh, being outside of the law, sure. or being outside of the policy that you eventually came forward with? So interestingly enough, and this was the, sort of the first red flag, because we were cross-designated federally, we could prepare our own federal warrants. And when I spoke to other uh, investigators that were assigned to task forces, FBI task forces outside of Connecticut, those officers or troopers or detectives actually would file their own UFAP warrant in federal court. They would, it was their case, they would prepare the UFAP arrest warrant and they would swear to it before a magistrate or a judge. And that's how it was handled. In the New Haven office, we prepared, we were asked to prepare um, the federal affidavit and then turn it over to an FBI agent who would then adopt that language as theirs. And get credit for it. Cited accordingly and say <laughs> this had been conveyed by, you know, Supervisory Inspector Dillon to me, and then swear to the warrant before a, a judge or a magistrate. And then they would get credit for that case, number one, for opening up the UFAP. And then when the person was arrested, for making the arrest uh, on the case. So they, they, it was sort of a, a, a double bonus. They got the stat um, on their 515 for the opening the file, and they got the subsequent stat for closing the file. Um, and, and so that I always thought was unusual because why did I have to have a middleman file an affidavit for me when I had federal designation to file it on my own and it wasn't my case? Um, the second red flag became the task force coordinator, who was not a supervisor, um, was constantly pressuring inspectors um, for more UFAP cases, meaning like, you know, what is the status of your case? Well, you know, haven't found him yet. Any indication he could be out of state? Um, you know, he has parents that live in New York. So far, nothing that really ties them to that. Well, that seems to be enough. Let's let's see if we can run with that. Um, so, you know, if something is skimpy as he had received a parking ticket in New York on his car, um, that now became, you know, that was going to be the, the probable cause that he has fled the state of Connecticut and has relocated to New York in an effort to avoid prosecution. All right. It's thin, but we'll go with it. Okay, it's 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 legitimate. Um, however, when warrants started to get bounced back from the U.S. Attorney's Office for insufficient probable cause, the coordinator um, would explode and uh, become irate that it had been refused uh, for the reason that it's not going to be prosecuted federally anyway. So what difference did it make? Uh, and it got to the point where several of them got bounced back for lack of uh, sufficient probable cause. 
And he announced to the office, this is bullshit. Give me those affidavits. I'll write them so they have to sign them. My motto is, if you don't have it, lie. Hell, they never prosecute these things anyway. Of course, I mean, if the red flag before wasn't sufficient, I mean, that was like fireworks of red flags going off. And this, this coordinator was an FBI agent. Yes. Not a supervisor, but, but the senior agent um, coordinating the, the office, yes. So um, I look at my partner, and he looks at me, and afterwards I was like, what do you make of that? And he's like, this sounds bad. You know, this is, this is disturbing to hear him say this publicly in front of other people. Um, so I went back and started to retrieve some of the UFAP warrants that I had had signed through other agents. And I quickly recognized that one had been falsified. Um, information was added to the affidavit that I knew was false. And worse, Steve, it was attributed to me as the source of the information. Of course, at this point, I only had one example. And I had a dilemma here. If I if I threw the challenge flag, and cited one example, um, I suspected that um, not only would it be explained away as a honest mistake and, and a miscommunication, but I figured that I would be rotated out of that task force pretty soon, um, as I had seen it happen in the past to other investigators that fell out of favor with uh, the coordinator. So I called two of the inspectors that I knew had outstanding UFAPs, um, and I pulled them aside in private and said, I'd like you to go back and review your most recent UFAPs. I said, they're still in the office here. Um, I said, and tell me if you have any problems with them. Um, one inspector came back right away and said, yes, he had an affidavit that had been changed, and he was now the source of false information in the new affidavit. Another inspector came back and said he had three very clear examples of the warrant being changed and him being the source of the false information. Um, I went back and was able to retrieve a few more and recognized two more had been changed. So at this point, we had seven concrete examples of affidavits being altered after we had submitted them. And the consistent thing was the information was false and it was always attributed back to one of the inspectors as the source of the information. So, so the question then is, is what's the incentive for them to do this? And I, I think it, they, they think they're not going to get caught. They think that yeah. there's really no consequence for it because lying on an affidavit for a charge that's never brought, really, what's the harm? It's like jello. You poke your finger into it and then you pull your, your finger back out. Nobody's going to know the difference. So I think, you, when, when you tie that willingness to be dishonest um, and then a willingness to actually uh, jeopardize your credibility because you're, in effect, your name is on it after the fact, uh, and then combine that finally with the appetite for we need to boost the number of sure. UFAP arrests that we're getting has all then melded together into this, this dishonest thing that is now jeopardizing the legitimacy yes. or the credibility yeah. of the, the members of the task force. Right. So sort of a two-part question, right? The, 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 my initial concern was, yes, my name is now on a federal affidavit that is filed in federal court, and I know the information is false and misleading and untrue. Um, the, the maybe overriding concern is 
if that lead say went to your office and you looked at that UFAP and read that information and it led you to believe that that person really was living at this address in, in your jurisdiction because the information appears to be strong when in fact it is false and non-existent. And you show up at that house and you gain entry and something goes wrong and the homeowner or resident thinks that perhaps he's being, uh, it's a home invasion, it is, um, you know, a burglary, it is um, criminals posing as law enforcement that are trying to gain access to their house and someone gets shot, you know, law enforcement or, or a civilian. Um, if there is some sort of a civil lawsuit thereafter, there's going to be discovery and they're going to look at this and they're going to say, you know, agent, a, agent friend, um, you know, why, why were you sure that this address was, was legitimate? And you're going to say, well, uh, supervisor inspector Dylan had an informant that had actually seen the person at that address. Now I'm going to get on the witness stand and say, no, I, I didn't have an informant in this case. Um, the agent that filed the affidavit, I'm guessing, is going to say, well, he did tell me that, and that's what I wrote on my affidavit. I didn't confirm that he had an informant, but he told me he did, and so I assumed that he did. This has all the aspects to all the problems that we've seen and, and brought forward. I mean, you have chasing stats. You have a willingness yes. that's a lie, a, a willingness to, to risk your credibility or others, others' credibility, yes. a willingness to risk the public safety. Correct. And then on, on, at the end of it, I'm, and you, I think you, you sure you share my sentiment. Uh, it's not up to me to determine somebody's guilt or innocence. The, the outcome doesn't matter to me. Correct. I want to be as buttoned up as I can when I bring my case forward. And I need to make sure that I've check the box, everything dotted, every mm -hmm. I crossed mm -hmm. every T. Mm -hmm. If there's even the most remote chance, and I know that I will look bad and we could lose the case, I have a problem with that. Correct. And, and that it, that's a pitfall that I think too few uh, federal invest investigators actually take into account because so few of them actually go through the, the trial process. Correct. Correct. And so the second part of the equation was what is their incentive other than just getting the numbers? Well, it became obvious. Uh, a quality... Um, QSI, quality service, I'm, I'm step, sorry. Quality step increase. Quality step increase, right, which some of the agents were able to get because their statistics were impressive. Um, and based for those on their who don't know, that's, that's not just a one-time bonus. That actually moves you ahead in a yes. pay grade. It boosts, it turbocharges your career. So for the rest of your career, you're actually at the higher level. Absolutely. And the other is, is the financial incentive award which at the time I believe was $1,500 check and a nice letter from the director saying, great job. Um, the third, um, more rare, but um, happens, um, is either a transfer to a more desirable assignment or a more desirable office, or in this particular case of the coordinator, a promotion to a supervisor's position, which I'm guessing, although my information is dated, is probably about a $30,000 a year pay bump, would you say or not? Yes, I mean, going from a 13 to a 14. And then again, you carry that off into your career. Correct. It's, Correct. You're going to have it as long as you got to that 14. Once you take the step down, you're at the highest pay level of a GS 13. And, and your pension, you, pension is reflected is, in that same. 
Yes. And, and if you want to endeavor to promote beyond that, you obviously now have experienced as a supervisor. So Correct. Uh, the, now you can go to an ASAC position at some point or yes. Yeah. So you, you, uh, you try to go, I guess, to the, the state attorney general, uh, chief, chief, or I'm sorry, uh, the yep. chief inspector with the state attorney. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and then because of the political nature and his affinity for the FBI kind of, uh, were thrown under the bus. Yeah, well, not, not only thrown under the bus, then he decided to drive the bus over us a couple of times. <laughs> um, the FBI um, had us removed from the task force. Completely understandable. There was zero trust at that point between the agents and the inspectors. Um, and we were allowed to continue to do our fugitive work. And we were quite successful. E even cases that um, let us out of state, um, we contacted our counterparts either sheriff's offices or police departments uh, or state police. And we're able to make apprehensions, um, you know, not physically being there, but based off of our information and our intelligence. Uh, so we, we did quite well and we were um, continuing to have a very successful track record. And this was infuriating the FBI. And the reason I know this is because they kept contacting the chief state attorney and saying, we cannot have for safety reasons, two different groups working independently doing the same work in the state. So our group should be disbanded. <laughs> right. Now they're worried about safety. Now they're worried about officer safety. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They, they, they weren't fans of competition, apparently. And um, so what happened was initially uh, I had five uh, um, inspectors assigned to me. Then it was four. Somebody had to go to a grand jury and somebody transferred. And then one day the chief state attorney announced that we ran out of funding and we were no longer going to be doing fugitive work. And we were all being transferred to different courthouses around the state of Connecticut. And ironically, even though I was the most senior inspector, um, I was transferred to the remote, the most remote location in the state, uh, which was a 90 minute drive for me one way uh, to get to get to a, a courthouse where I had absolutely nothing to do. Um, it was at that point that I decided I'd had enough and decided to seek legal counsel to see what my options were because, um, you know, I recognized immediately that this was politics at its worst and, and I was not going to stand for it. Wow. And then there's, the, the, that takes us, I guess, up into uh, when ultimately you go decide to go to the media. Um, and, and that is, I guess, the crux of eventually why you, you, things came ahead in a court uh, sort of showdown with, uh, with the state of Connecticut, correct? True. But, 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 but ironically, I was labeled early on a whistleblower, but had never spoken to a reporter. One of my colleagues on the fugitive squad did, um, spoke to him on the record at length and it became a front page, you know, Sunday edition, uh, news story. And, and this is the catalyst of what of the reason why um, I ended up in court. But when you look back historically and you analyze the case, I had never come forward and spoken out publicly about what had taken place. I had kept it in-house. You'd actually done what a, wh a whistleblower is supposed to do. You've gone yes. to a, someone in the chain of command. You're not out there glory hunting and, and trying to get Correct. yourself on newspaper or TV. You actually have a legitimate concern. Bring it to the people who are supposed to uh, affect the reforms that are necessary or at least investigate it and deem yes. that maybe your concerns are, are unwarranted one way or another. I don't think you, again, system idealist, hey, is this okay? Is this not okay? If it's okay, I guess I'll go back to work. Uh, but in this case, the, the chief uh, in, inspector 
uh, saw his career aspirations being jeopardized and then instead uh, stopped any sort of investigation from going on into the right. malfeasance of the FBI. He was on the short list um, to head the, the criminal division of the U.S. Department of Justice, or at least he thought he was. And that only came out during trial testimony when he was under oath. Um, he never got the position um, because he was certainly uh, unqualified for it. But um, this, I believe, was one of the strong reasons why um, he took the extreme action that he did against us. Um, he knew the FBI in New Haven would have to do his background investigation. He recognized he would need the endorsement of the U.S. Attorney's Office. And he decided that he, like, like you said before, he was not only willing to throw us under the bus, he, would, he was willing to drive the bus um, in an effort to appease the FBI and stay in good favor with the U.S. Attorney's Office. So I'm, we, we don't have to go into the nitty gritty of the actual trial. I think that that's probably worth a reading. And, um, you know, there's transcripts and stuff from, from the trial that are in there. You guys, you had some, some nice, uh, some nice theater theatrical work to, <laughs> to intimidate the, uh, the witnesses, or at least get them worried about the information you had. Um, yeah. I, it's, it's a fun story, especially if like a courtroom drama, it's, it's totally real. It's a little bit there. of a chess match. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I do want to do, cause I, I did tease it early on, uh, you wanted to get, uh, the great Serpico as a, as an expert witness to come down. Um, you were able to one, find him. And yes. then uh, yeah. had some interactions with him, which has got to be uh, a and convinced good... him. It convinced him to to um, assist us in our in, in our yeah our legal case. Um, interestingly enough, early on uh, in this interview, you had made reference to him, and and you also had made reference to the word rat. And <laughs> I had a conversation with him about that because I, I I drove to upstate New York, probably a two hour ride or or better, to pick him up and bring him back to the Connecticut and then, of course, the return trip. So I got to spend some quality time one-on-one, -on -one, you know, with my sort of my college idol. And I brought up specifically, you know, that term rat. Um, at, at, at one point, um, someone had left a voicemail on my, on my work line um, calling me, amongst several other things, a rat. That was the reoccurring word um, amongst some other words that were in there. Um, but it was, uh, you know, that I was a, a, a rat of the lowest level. And when I mentioned that to, to Frank, he, he said, you know, interesting. He said, um, my take is you can't rat on a rat. He said, but he goes, I'll tell you the reason why we have never been rats. He says, a rat is someone who gets caught doing something wrong. And in an effort to better their position, they inform on their colleagues. He said, I didn't do that because I never did anything wrong. He says, and you didn't do that because you didn't do anything wrong. He said, so the term rat does not apply. He goes, it applies to mobsters who roll over on other mobsters. He says, it doesn't apply to an honest cop who's trying to do the right thing for the right reason. He said, so in our instance, Steve, it doesn't apply to you or Garrett or me. Um, what Frank Serpico said, the term I would use is lamplighter, not rat. And I was like, okay, I said, I, 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 I'll buy into that. I'll evolve that further. That's the new term is suspendable. That's, that's <laughs> sort of how we define ourselves now doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons, uh, not for any sort of personal claim and, and uh, damn the torpedoes. We're going to do that because that's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're called to do. Correct. Yeah, we're always going to be labeled as disgruntled employees. I mean, that's another term that they love to trot out there. 
You know, I, I've been called a lot of things, disgruntled employee, uh, conspiracy theorist, political hack, partisan. Um, and Publicity seeker. Yeah, yeah. Nobody's called me wrong yet Correct. for you. So I, I think we have that going in our favor. And, and you always get the flack when you're over the target. So it's look, I'm, I'm happy to take the flack as long as it's, it leads to, to actual truth and, and transparency, which has always been uh, what, what my focus has been on and in yours as well. Yeah. So, um, so, so two things. I used everyone's name in the book, um, despite admonitions that uh, there was legal jeopardy. And of course, my, my comeback was, I told the truth on the witness stand for two days, and I'm telling the truth in my book. So I will take that risk. Um, the other thing is on my website, um, www.thinbluelibook.com, I have PDF copies. Oh, thank you. I have PDF copies of the original true affidavits and the falsified second affidavits. So anyone that has uh, the curiosity to see exactly what I'm talking about when I say that um, information and language was added, um, if they're thinking like it was a white lie or it was an exaggeration or something like that, something rather harmless or innocent, Take the time to look at the PDFs and compare the two and then make the decision for yourself. Were, were these unintentional oversights or were these deliberate falsifications to exaggerate probable cause where none existed? And the uh, and, and, and look, the, the story kept going and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. leave you know, we'll, and, and, let, and in a second courtroom uh, drama. I mean, it's it's a great read. I would encourage everybody to make sure the, the thin blue lie book.com um get an honest cop versus the fbi that's right um coming off of your specific story though i, I want i'm really curious as, as somebody who's a veteran as local state and federal uh, law enforcement officer uh looking at the current climate uh what what's your take on how how the fbi is is behaving these days what would uh what would be your thoughts, your takeaways, and then maybe we can talk about some of your ideas to make it better? Yeah. Um, my concern is that, um, you know, that, that expression, stay in your lane. Um, the FBI has plenty of lanes to choose from, um, yet it seems like they're constantly trying to forge new lanes. Um, and and you know, we touched on this at one other time, um, you know, quality versus quantity. Um, the FBI traditionally has been known for the quality of their work and uh, the quality of their cases. Uh, you know, I was watching Netflix in, and uh, one night and uh, it was about the targeting organized crime in New York. And it had to do with the rivalry between the New York Police Department and the FBI. But th that was part of the story. But but the, the other part of the story was they were committed to focusing on large scale, major crime investigations, you know, uh, the La Cosa Nostra, you know, the organized, the traditional organized crime. And that was great. I mean, that that is what they were sort of designed to do. Um, unfortunately, it's gotten watered down where now they are into any and every category, it seems, of, of, of crime that you can imagine. Um, 
And, you know, locally here or, or, or regionally um, in Connecticut, um, motor vehicle street takeovers have become trendy. And now all of a sudden I see in these news articles and, and on websites, you know, call the FBI uh, street takeover hotline. And I'm thinking these are motor vehicle charges that need to be addressed by municipal police departments and the Connecticut State Police. There is no federal nexus there. And yet it's one more category now that they've sort of inserted themselves into. There's not that many agents, Steve, you and I know. Um, what is there, 14,000 across the, 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 the world? Um, they can't get bogged down in the minutia of everyday police work. They, they have to reserve themselves for the, the types of cases um, that justify, you know, federal resources. And, and I, I'm just concerned that they, they keep chasing, the, you know, the latest shiny object in an attempt to stay relevant when they should be concentrating and focusing their resources on select cases that have national or international impact. They're not doing a good job of triaging what's out in front of them and prioritizing where, where they should actually devote the resources and the time that they have. And, and they do have substantial resources. I believe it's somewhere around $11 billion, 14,000 agents. But look, 14,000 agents, it gets spread, spread pretty thin. You worked in Alexandria, which is uh, tangential to, to the Washington, D.C. area, but it's a relatively small office. I mean, I worked in two small offices. We had four, four or five guys in Iowa, in, and, and we had about eight, nine, ten people in Daytona. And in Daytona, East Coast, heavily populated, there's, there was a million people in the four counties that we were responsible wow. for, yeah. uh, which is why I, I actually be interested because you touched on this too, where with, when it came to the, the federal deputization that guys had for mm -hmm. pursuing these UFAP warrants, uh, I assume you're getting that probably from the U.S. Marshals Service. Yes. Uh, and uh, an idea that I've sort of proffered to, to bring about reform, if you're not going to do away with the FBI. I think that this would, if they did this, even if the FBI was operating as we wanted it, you could actually improve the FBI. And this would, uh, what I would do, I would actually expand the number of local guys that have federal deputization, mm -hmm. make them the task force officers, the guys that are joining the task forces and, and they're aiding. And, and I would actually take away all of the guns, all the 1811 designations from the FBI and make it an unarmed Bureau of Investigation. And the reason I would do that then is they would have to follow what the local sheriff or police department's priorities were, as opposed to following the next shiny object that they see that the people at the Hoover building see on the news and say, we need to start an initiative to address this threat. No, the, the sheriff who's elected by the officials has the constituents that mm -hmm. he's responsive to mm -hmm. uh, and say, look, we have, this is my problem. Uh, my guys are, are overwhelmed with cases or we need more resources. Can you give us the intel, the technology, the funding? Yes. But my guys will actually go do the investigating and affect the arrest. Well, they have the informants. They know the geography. They know the residents. You know, they know the the area, you know, far better than than a transplant is ever going to know that area, you know. Um, but but along those same lines, Steve, you know, we, we have a DEA, right, right in their title right drugs let them work all the narcotics violations we have an alcohol tobacco firearms and explosives you know federal agency let them work the firearms cases let them investigate the explosion explosive cases 
I guess alcohol and tobacco, you know, that's all part of their name, right? Uh, so, you know, we're, we're constantly, I don't want to say encroaching into those areas, but we, we really are when there's already a federal agency that is designated to address that primarily. So there's plenty of other work left if you take away, you know, let the marshal service work nothing but the, you know, fugitives in, in, in courthouse security and protection of federal judges and magistrates. That's fine. We don't need to also be working fugitives while they're working fugitives, right? We, we don't have to be working narcotics cases while DEA is working narcotics cases. Um, there's still plenty of work to go around. It's the mission creep. It's the mission creep of the bureaucracy. I mean, yes. you're not, they don't see working a case start to finish as success. They see that as a, as a actual loss because now that this is a case they don't have on their books. Yes. You're not succeeding right. unless you're growing and you're looking for new and novel ways to do that. And one way that they do that is they see what's on TV and the news and, yes. and they say that's the new catchy term. I mean, yeah. personal anecdote, when I first started with the FBI, the human trafficking term was starting to become in vogue. Mm -hmm. And we had, a, I lived in Sioux City, Iowa, which is at the meeting spot of Iowa, Nebraska, and South Dakota. It's a tri-state area. And there was a task force that was established to address human trafficking. And the only case that it was addressing was a prostitute who lived in South Dakota, whose husband was her pimp. And they would drive together to Iowa for her to turn tricks. And they yeah. said that that constituted human trafficking. Technically, maybe. Um, is that what we well, want? Crossing to state lines, in? that right, was the right. federal nexus. Right. Is that we're what we want to, to be involved in at that level? It's a local vice problem, not necessarily the, the, where the feds need to be putting their, their attention Correct. and spotlighting. Uh, but again, it's mission creep. It's, it's the opportunity to get a headline where you can say, we got human trafficking uh, addressed in this area. Um, and and it's it's a failure again to to triage and and to address mm -hmm. what the priorities are. Uh, what stunned me actually, and uh, actually to to my uh, actual pleasure, was the fact that uh, there's not a lot of attention to white collar crimes. I really didn't want to get into that, so I was happy to to take yeah. on the violent crimes. Yeah. But the idea of the FBI from its origin is complex financial crimes, right? Yes, they're, yeah. they're the white collar guys, right. but it it is just a understaffed. It's an under-addressed issue, uh, and I think there's people are loath. They see numbers. They, they just automatically check out, and you just – between that and the fact that federal prosecutors won't take fraud cases that are under a million dollars for the most part, yeah. how many people are being victimized because the FBI is trying to chase after gun cases or, or speed, bank uh, street racers? Yeah. I mean, even bank robberies. The, the, the local and state police are fully capable – of investigating a bank robbery, which is no different than a pharmacy robbery or a grocery store robbery, except it's a bank. Um, I get the whole thing with the FDIC. It's a federally insured institution, blah, blah, blah. But really, I mean, is is that really where, where we should be focused on our priorities is on a, a $600, you know, bank robbery? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And, and, and you know, again, with the fugitives, the marshals are more than happy to do it. They're competent. They, 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 they're good at it. Turn it right over to them. Let them run with, them with the fugitive cases. There's, there's still more than enough work to keep everyone busy. There's more than enough work if you assigned everyone to just work child pornography. Absolutely. Right. Right. And there's no, there's no, you know, agency that is the, you know, I mean, we have DEA, we have ATF, you know, we don't have a, a child pornography federal agency, right? We don't. It's 
it's just all addressed all, all above the board. I mean, I, I dealt with guys from Homeland Security. Uh, in Iowa, there was guys from ICE that were working child pornography because they were uh, stationed in Des Moines, which was a sanctuary city. So they weren't going to get cooperation. So instead of just sitting there idly, they thought, all right, we'll just work child pornography mm -hmm. because we're sworn in as 1811 criminal investigators, even though uh, this isn't what our agency is is supposed to be doing. Uh, but that's a whole other issue. I mean, you look mm -hmm. at the uh, the U.S. Capitol Police are setting up these resident agencies like in my state in Florida. And their their investigators are technically special agents, or they're eighteen eleven criminal investigators. So mm -hmm. they have the ability to investigate violations of federal law. But their actual mandate for their agency is to protect the Capitol building and the the occupants and those who work there. Uh, but mission creep sets in. You got to justify the budget, and, yep. and nobody ever says no to a bad idea. That's the way to becoming a senior executive. In and and, and no program is ever ended because we've accomplished our goal. Right. Yep. There's it, the, it's the, the closest thing to immortality is the government program, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Once it <laughs> once it's created, it never dies. Uh, so in the, in the closing minutes here, um, you know, you you actually finished the race. You 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 wound up uh, retiring from the state's attorney's office in in Connecticut. Um, what what was the next chapter of your life at having? putting up the, the gun and the badge. What was that experience like? I mean, it's, it's not going to be something that I experienced. Uh, I know a lot yeah. of people struggle with it. Was What, what was the feelings on that? Well, you know, it, it, I, I, I saw a lot of my, my, my colleagues and peers basically, you know, their second chapter became nothing more than a subchapter of their original story. You know, they, we'd be going to security or PI work or they'd go to a smaller police department or some other agency. And I just, I, I, I just felt like after 30 years, you know, I, I, I sort of, you know, been there, done that and wanted something different. So um, I had gotten into CrossFit in about, about 2007 and I retired in 2009 and opened up uh, my own CrossFit gym. Um, I've stayed involved with that, although I did sell that gym. Um, a couple of years later, um, decided to open up uh, an escape room sort of as a lark, something I thought would be sort of fun and and very different to do. And um, a buddy and I um, ran one um, very successfully up until COVID, which, which killed that business. Um, so we sold that business. And then I decided to commit to the idea of writing the book. Um, and that was, you know, that as you well know, um, it's, it's not a fast or easy process. And um, I had to self-educate myself on how to write nonfiction in a way where it didn't uh, read like a 300-page affidavit. Um, and I, uh, then I had to find a publisher, which we, we was not easy because being an unpublished author is the catch-22. Um, every publisher wants to know, you know, what have you already um you know what have you already written and had published and if you're unpublished then it's very hard to get any traction um, so that was my next um challenge and um since then i've, I've just gone around speaking about the book uh at libraries um, you know down in florida that where i got to meet you um, and that's been pretty much it um, started to play pickleball st stuck with the crossfit um, and yeah just enjoying retirement well, you're not one of those uh, annoying CrossFitters that's like the vegans, like wait five minutes and they'll tell you about it. 
<laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I actually I, saw I, I, I saw a meme about that. I saw a meme about that. It was a picture of a, a guy in an empty standing at a urinal in an empty men's room, and then the person walks in and walks all the way there and gets in his ear and says, I do CrossFit. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guilty is charged to uh, you know, it's it's I've been doing that for about uh, uh like 12 years, 13 years. Yeah, too. no, I, but, I know. But, you've but been like, this is the first time. mention of it on the Amred podcast. So okay. go back. I I'm not one of those vegan. Yeah, 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 yeah. Again, you know, I, I, I keep it as a, as a bit of a secret now because uh, uh, at a certain age it becomes CrossFit light, and um, I, I certainly don't want to uh, talk about it unless I absolutely have to. <laughs> no, no, you just got to have new priorities. You can't go for the one rep max anymore. You just say like, right. well, what, what's your, what's your thirty rep max? Because I can, <laughs> I can do the, the little dumbbells that are pink yeah. for a long yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, I, I, my, my famous line is, I'm so old now that it takes me 20 minutes to do a 15-minute AMRAP. Perfect, perfect. Hey, as long as you, as long as you finish, that's it. Just put your exactly. name on the board. That's great. Exactly. Hey, this has been great, Greg. I, I really appreciate you you taking the time to join the, uh, the American Radicals podcast. Folks, if you've uh, stayed with us this long, I appreciate it. Make sure that you give us the thumbs up, smash the like button, and follow us. Uh, if you are listening subsequently on any sort of streaming service, uh, subscribe to the channel. Give us the five-star review. Uh, you can follow the show. Uh, the, the Twitter profile for the show is at AmRadPod. Uh, myself, at Real Steve Friend. And you can always follow Garrett, who is not here today, but will be with us next time, at G-O-B Actual. Again, thanks, Greg. I uh, hope that uh, you get some sunshine. You should come down to Florida with us. Uh, because it's always sunny in Florida. Mm. I used to look like you when I lived in the Midwest, but now uh, I'm sunny and, and tanned, and my kids don't own a pair of pants, so that's the way to do it. So I uh, love the uh, logo um, in the background. I've been looking at it, and I was like, that's very clever and good for you. Nice. That's the Suspendables logo. That's the flag. Uh, if you notice, it's the FBI badge upside down with the Suspendables S because it's an agency in distress. Uh, we didn't plug the merch store, so thanks for reminding me of that. Garrett's Family Sweatshop, the Garrett O'Boyle Family Sweatshop, www.the-suspendables.com. You can go ahead and get your hats and your T-shirts and your, your sweatshirts and your stickers. Uh, so go ahead and do that. Uh, and that's all for us today, folks. Have a great one, and uh, we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the voice of the Suspendables on the American Radicals podcast. Follow us on rumble.com slash amrad. Odd.